this is Lindy Kaiser, and welcome to this episode of ClearCast. Today, we're chatting with a real dream team of acquisition and defense contracting professionals at MITRE Corporation, Lorna Tedder, Dan Ward, Deborah Zides. For those who may not be familiar, MITRE is a really cool company with a very unique mission within the government contracting space. They're a not-for-profit company that operates multiple federally funded research and development centers working across government and in public-private partnerships. So I'm really excited to be chatting with Lorna, Deb, and Dan today. I wanted to take up a brief moment and ask each of you to just introduce yourselves quickly to the folks that are listening today. I'm Lorna Tedder. I am an acquisition subject matter expert, and my background is in contracting. I was a contracting officer for the Air Force as a civilian, worked there for 31 years. Hey, everybody. Uh, Dan Ward here. Thanks again for having us on your show. We're excited to be part of this conversation. I've been here at MITRE for about three years. My unofficial title is Innovation Catalyst. A lot of time helping people understand what innovation is and how to do it, uh, specifically within the area of defense acquisition policy and uh, program management. Uh, I spent 20 years active duty in the Air Force uh, prior to coming to MITRE, where I specialized in, uh, again, rapid innovation, so leading small teams to quickly develop and field advanced military technologies. This is Deb Zides. I, too, am a MITRE and a subject matter expert in acquisition policies, uh, predominantly in the Department of Defense side of the house, although I am starting to work with Homeland Defense and at the state levels as well. So very interesting to see what's going on across the federal, state, and local for acquisition activities. My background is 20 years active duty Air Force and uh, acquisition command. I've been downrange in uh, lo- different locations, had an opportunity to uh, stand up acquisition capabilities. I've worked on satellites, communications, command and control, some classified programs. So really a, a lot of diverse opportunities in acquisition. Then I uh, retired and I started doing a, a little bit of government work. So I was an NH04, which is, a, I guess, a government term there, but a federal civilian. And I did that and I uh, helped put together the uh, the counter all drone uh, capabilities for the Department of Defense. So we really had to be innovative and move out fast for that requirement. Then I uh, moved over to MITRE about this time last year, and here I am as a subject matter expert in acquisition, supporting the FFRDC that you mentioned. The years and the breadth and the depth of experience and also the diversity of experiences you have is really cool and definitely gives you an interesting lens into interpreting what's going on with the area of defense acquisition. So in that vein, what are you seeing with current acquisition priorities specific to the office of the Secretary of Defense? Do you guys mind if I jump in on that first? Okay. Again, just kind of having come fresh from the field and uh, the uh, experience of living in the program office at the tactical level of uh, program execution, one of the things that we're seeing now is a heightened interest and motivation by the, the senior leadership at the OSD levels, at the Secretary of Defense levels, to leverage some of the new statutes that have come out since 2016 from Congress, which have basically given more authorities, more room for the Department of Defense to acquire smarter, faster, leverage rapid prototyping and rapid fielding, understand that we're now migrating from the circa 1990s heavy big equipment to a lot of software intensive programs and being able to develop pathways, bring that capability in and work with more non-traditional vendors, i.e. Silicon Valley, as well as our traditional companies that that we've worked with in in the past. To that, I would just add that I think that the three main thrusts of a lot of the changes we're seeing are a focus on speed, adaptability, and critical thinking. And in practice, what that means is is delegating decision authority down to a level that supports rapid action. Uh, And that's actually the phrase that they use in the new DoD 5000.80 policy that just came out. This says decisions should be delegated to a level that supports rapid action and rapid decision making. 
Uh, so we're seeing much more of an emphasis on experimentation and iteration, as opposed to previous years where the focus has been more on predictability and control, and you gotta get it right on the first try. You know, we're gonna spend 20 years developing the single monolithic exquisite solution. We've moved away from that. We've seen the, the culture moving more towards small, iterative, incremental, experimental, try stuff, and move forward based on actual data from you know, things that we built and things that we learned rather than kind of hypothetical paperwork exercises. So it's a pretty exciting time to be uh, in the acquisition world these days. Anything you want to add to that, Lorna? Yes. One of the areas that we're looking at and that we're seeing some real changes in is with intellectual property. A few years back, IP intellectual property was really based on more on the government's needs. And we didn't have a lot of startups out there who were really changing the technological game for us. Now we are seeing more startups, more small businesses, more the non-traditional defense contractors who have these great ideas that we as the government would like to get that technology and put it into programs of record. So we're changing how we negotiate data rights and licenses. Uh, starting to add to that how we evaluate IP as part of the negotiation. So it's no longer just limited, unlimited data rights and government purpose rights. Now we're looking at licenses, especially negotiated licenses, doing things a bit differently, much more commercial than we've done in the past. And this allows the small businesses and the startups to play with the government. I remember back when, you know, I was a second lieutenant when the earth was cooling. I don't, I, don't, I don't think as a program manager I could have even spelled the word IP. It was just not something that was at the forefront for us. And now because we've migrated from the old way of the military really had the, uh, the purses and, and we're driving industry to this, now let's see what industry is doing with commercial off the shelf. We really do need to change our perspective and, and train up the workforce to understand the challenges and the nuances from these non-traditional vendors and, and yeah, and what we're finding is there's a lot of ways to manage intellectual property. It's not an all-or-nothing thing. It's not a binary thing. There's a whole range of approaches to collaboratively come to an agreement with industry on what the right way is to handle this type of intellectual property or that, mm -hmm. given the needs and interests of the company, given the needs and interests of the government, and, and the operational needs, like how much of this do we need to own or how much of this do we need to sort of just leverage. The change, the rapid deployment of things, you know, those aren't terms that are typically associated with government and the Department of Defense. It's just encouraging to hear the whole different vernacular than, than we had decades ago. My next question is, OSD just published a series of policies associated with fielding capabilities, again, at the speed of relevance, which is amazing. Can you talk a little bit more about those policies and where those who are interested might be able to find them? Yeah, um, so the Defense Acquisition University is kind of the definitive source of a lot of the information about this. So if you go to dau.edu, you'll mm -hmm. find a lot of great material there. Uh, MITRE also has a website called ADA that stands for Acquisition in the Digital Age. It's aida.mitre.org. Uh, that is sort of a companion to the, the DAU site. So there's a lot of commentary. There's a lot of explanation. We've got use cases and case studies, you know, just uh, sort of companion information that helps us understand what these policies really say, what they mean, and how do you put them into practice. We try to provide the, the bridge, the, the connective tissue between policy and practice by understanding the policy, but also having deep connections to program offices and the people who have to put the policy into practice on a day-to-day on -day basis. You know, we, we really do a lot of trusted advisor type work. You know, we, we play the trusted advisor role as people try to understand, like, what do these new policies even say? How do I put them into practice in, in my day-to-day -day work? And, and really what's happened, for those who are following what OSD and, you know, the SECAF, a lot of senior leaders are signing out new policies. The new pivot, there used to be something called uh, the Department of Defense Initiative 5002, 
which some of us like to refer to as the horse blanket, because if you wanted to summarize everything that the acquisition workforce was doing from milestone A all the way through putting something in the boneyard, it was literally a piece of paper that was, what, like three feet by four feet or something like that, two-sided, eight-point font. And that was the old traditional way of doing business. And since then, Ms. Lord, who's the current uh, ANS, signed out for... 30th? December 30th, 30th, right. yeah, December 30th, 2019, the new adaptive acquisition framework. So rather than telling everyone prescriptively, here's what you need to do, and everyone do it the same way for all your programs, regardless of the medium or service, think through and consider a bunch of different pathways. So the adaptive acquisition framework basically provides pathways for program managers, decision authorities to look at and say, I've been given this requirement. What is the best way to get to fielding? Is it an urgent operational need? Is it something you know that needs to be fielded in the next two years? Is it something that Congress gave us uh, authorities to create mid-tier acquisition? So that's now its own pathway. If you can do a rapid fielding or a rapid prototyping in five years or less, there's other stipulations underneath that as well. You just need to read you know the details in, in the uh, DOTI. But it's saying, go ahead, go faster. You don't have to follow the old JCIDs process. Another pathway that's coming out, it's a draft version, I think, right now, but uh, the software acquisition pathway with the recognition that um, you don't acquire and field software the same way that you would, you know, an airplane. There's just nuances between hardware and software. Right. And a lot of times when you're acquiring a new fighter jet, you are also acquiring software. Mm -hmm. And so you can use these different acquisition pathways at the same time. You can use the Mm -hmm. hardware pathway and the software pathway. Guess what? Pretty much everything we buy these days has some element of software in it. Love that you're able to merge the pathways, blend the pathways, jump back and forth. Right. Yeah, you can, you can <laughs> you go, go back and forth. Right, right. And this is so yeah. consistent with that deeper message which in, your, in your first question about fostering more adaptability, more critical mm-hmm. thinking, uh, and more speed of delivery. Mm-hmm. And customizing to what you're buying. Yeah, tailoring your processes to meet your actual needs. Yeah, and that, so, that, so that's what, what's going on from you know the, the senior level interest is, is changing to these pathways and then seeing what flows down from there and enabling the program teams to execute. Were there policies before that were prohibitive to getting this done? Did the new policies kind of pave the way for this being done or just make it apparent that this is how they're going to do business or how does that work? That's a great question. I think when you look at some of the older policies, there are things in the new policies that have been part of the old policy for a long time that are just getting a renewed emphasis. We're just making it a little more clear, a little more emphatic about things like critical thinking. I think we always valued critical thinking, but now we're talking about critical thinking with speed. There's just more of an emphasis on speed and adaptability and prototyping. I think the previous policy Oftentimes, it was the execution and the implementation of the policy tended to be compliance-oriented. You've got to check all the boxes. You've got to don't skip any steps. Now, with the new policy, there's much more of an emphasis on tailoring, like Lorna mentioned a minute ago. The old policy always says tailor as much as possible, but in practice, I think that policy didn't get implemented quite, didn't take as much advantage of the tailoring and the speed in the old ones. So rewriting the new policies and and reissuing these these policies is a way for senior leadership to reemphasize tailoring, speed, decision-making experimentation uh, in a way that, that the old policy is just for whatever reason, you know, never quite emphasizes as much as these new ones do. It kind of allows a, a fostering of a new culture. Again, this old traditional culture that has been there that, like you said, Dan, is, is compliance-based as opposed to there's some major actors out there in the world that are doing things that the U.S. needs to defend against. What's more important, doing a checklist and saying, hey, we're compliant with, you know, checklist item number seven, or let's get the capability into the hands of the warfighter as soon as possible and get the feedback. And if it's not perfect, we change it, but at least they have something. 
So it's that that culture that that is starting to change. I think the, uh, yeah. Secretary Esper just said uh, was talking about um, culture will be the hardest part of of changing the acquisition environment. Yeah, yeah. We talk about changing the culture. Like culture is our, our shared beliefs and behaviors. What are the things that we all sort of hold in common and the actions that we take? And so if we adopt tailoring, for example, as a our shared belief, we all believe tailoring is good and important and we should do more of it. And then the behavior is we actually tailor our processes, make sure we're able to deliver things quickly. I think that's the type of change we're seeing this policy encourage people to do. And hopefully that translates to practices. I love it. And I, DOD policy, much like parenting, if you said it once, have you really said it at all? Uh, but I, I think the issue with the, some, some of these policies, I think if you've been in the system long enough, you're like, oh, is the government, okay, this is the buzzword right now. Are they going to change their mind? How much is this? But when you see it in over repetitive policy statements and published, I think it sends home the idea that, yeah, this is what the government intends and this is what they're going to be basing their acquisition decisions on. We're giving you time to adjust and now we're, we're emphasizing it. So again, this is a big, big issue, a big problem, a lot of big solutions out there. How is MITRE specifically assisting the federal government with this important job of embracing innovation and connecting with those non-traditional vendors and startups that have really great ideas but don't even know how to get connected in the federal space? What you're not seeing on the podcast is we're all looking at each other saying, oh my gosh, I have so many things yeah. who goes first. <laughs> because, because it is. there. If you think of this as a continuum, there are so many opportunities to engage. So some of the things that I'm engaged with, for example, is bridging innovation. So MITRE has a bridging innovation team that basically is out there looking at all of the non-traditional actors. They're in the, the innovation hubs. If you've heard of some of the innovation organizations within the Department of Defense, you know, working with AFWERKS accelerators such as Techstars, the startups, the communities in Boston Seaport District, for example, where, where I'm from. We have Mass Robotics. We have Mass Challenge. A lot of incubators and accelerators out there that are finding these small companies. We're trying to grab that innovation and understand it and see how we can bring that to some of the users in the, and not just the Department of Defense. It's actually much larger. So Homeland Security can use something. You know, FAA can use something. So from a from an innovation perspective, we're out there just trying to see what is going on outside the fence, try and understand it, and try and bring that bridge, if you will, to the users. Yeah, we kind of help translate between government speak and startup speak. So we, we speak both languages. A lot of us have been entrepreneurs and, and been out there in the civilian world and the, the corporate world and the startup world. So then to also be able to speak government ease, you know, and to speak military tech and to make those connections so that when one person says A and somebody else says B and we say, okay, what you both mean really is this. And then we can also help walk them through the process of proposals and, you know, how do you do these experiments and what is this new middle tier of acquisition policy? Again, helping to kind of connect those dots and get the right people in the room so they can speak to each other and have some meaningful conversation. And, and Dan, I mean, your your phone doesn't uh, stop ringing because <laughs> we actually share an office. <laughs> and there are a lot of um, organizations out there calling saying, hey, Dan, can you come talk to us? Hey, can you talk to insert naval organization. Hey, can you come talk to this classified program? Can you come talk to, tell us what you're seeing from MITRE and share that with these program execution teams. Right, right. Both the government side and the and industry side, you know, the, the small businesses and the startups are like, you know, hey, I heard the government wants to do this thing and I have a tech that helps solve that problem, but how do I even begin to get started to make this available to what could be an interesting, an interested customer? Oh, there's so much paperwork and there's so much confusion and all those new acronyms. How do I speak that language so so we can help make those connections? One of the things that I do that write a lot of articles or thought pieces on acquisition, particularly how to accelerate your procurement lead time, mm -hmm. to uh, to get to rapid, 
Yeah, and this is so consistent with like a lot of these new policies are all about experimentation and prototyping. And and the policy now explicitly calls out partnering with non-traditional vendors. So like under what they call an OTA or an other transaction transaction authority, authority. authority. yeah, or agreement. A gets used in both ways. Um, but that OTA thing specifically calls out working with non-traditional vendors, so not going to the usual suspects. Part of what the policy says we're supposed to do, but there often is this this language gap, this language barrier or just an awareness and a, and a connection. So again, part of what we get to do is help make some of those connections. And we do it through a lot of different mediums. You, you know, you mentioned the blogging, if you will. I mean, we have, we have a, a platform, an acquisition digital age ADA, you know, website platform where mm-hmm. the blogs are, or, you know, where some stat pieces That's are. But AIDA.MITRE.ORG <laughs> slash, slash blog for the blog event. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, we, we have an extensive social media presence, right? You'll see us having conversations, posting articles, a lot of different environments. We're on the speaking tours. Again, somehow yeah, we get our work done. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Lorna and I were out in, in uh, San Diego a few months ago at LA, uh, yeah, LA yeah, talking to uh, Defense Acquisition University, predominantly Navy organizations, telling them what we're seeing. And then, yeah, we just, since there's only a couple of hours, drive up to Los Angeles and it's traffic hours. You know, well, yeah, we you made it out to, out to Alaska. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Air Force, for flying me out to Alaska in the winter. <laughs> Very much appreciated. I couldn't get the Hawaii trip. I couldn't get, you know, but sorry, I have, a, I have nice new boots for it. <laughs> Those articles are a lot yeah. of fun to write. I'm able to go back to decades of contracting experience with rapid acquisition tools, innovative contracting, and use my life experiences in contracting to show other people exactly what I did. So I've shown that, hey, here's the precedent for it. I didn't go to jail for it. It's all legal. It's all okay. You can do it too. You can do it fast. Copy what I've done here. Dan and, and Lorna are being very humble with their writing <laughs> skills. They are both published authors. Yeah, these are these are well published in, individuals here to uh, to my left. So. And just to pass along the compliments, I wish I could write as well as Lorna, because Lorna <laughs> just has just brilliant voice that's so personal and so real and so practical uh, in in all the things that she writes about. And, and from a workforce yeah. perspective, uh, you know, so this is a, a clearance jobs podcast, if if you will, you know. So, do any individuals who are listening to this and you know looking for their opportunities to fit into this acquisition ecosystem, it does not hurt if you are an effective communicator. Uh, whether it's written, whether it's uh, being able to draw a model, and to be able to use analogies and, and leverage those experiences to help move the culture forward in uh, the Department of Defense. So we're always on the lookout for individuals who have those skills. And I'm glad you pointed that out because, yeah, that's great to touch on. You guys have a lot of experience in what's been going on online, but we always talk about that with candidates, like being published, getting out there. Just be aware that that's definitely a, a valuable skill set. And but we definitely want to touch on what the current trends are for contracting for Department of Defense programs. So maybe if we can just have each of you speak and give either the top trend you're currently working on or that you're seeing or, or maybe give your highlights from what we've already discussed. I'd like to defer mine uh, to, to <laughs> yeah. Lorna. Lorna is the premier contracting officer. If she's seen it, she's done it. <laughs> if it's been done, she did it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you want to talk about some of the current trends in contracting? So the big thing we're seeing right now is other transactions, other transaction authority, or the non-FAR-based contracts are known as other transaction agreements, or OTs or OTAs. Everybody's kind of jumped on board with this over the last two years, but these have been around. This authority has been around a long, long time. I did my first other transaction agreement in 1997. 
This past two years, people have found out that they can move a lot faster. They can negotiate intellectual property better. They can get to startups and non-traditional defense contractors that there's just no way they could ever really play quick and easily with the government using FAR-based contracts. They're not set up for it. They're not used to it. They can't turn it around that quickly. So an OT is more like what a startup is used to when they're dealing with investors and commercial companies. So that really cuts through a lot of the bureaucracy for them. You can still write very creative contracts that can get you to what you want to buy, but this is leveling the playing field, lowering the barrier to come in and work with the government. Now, there are other statutes as well that have been around for a long, long time, but they are becoming popular again also. That includes 10 U.S.C. 2373, as well as there, there are price challenges. Or sometimes they're referred to as other transactions, and they're not really the other transaction authority, but they're close in the U.S. code, close in proximity. But these are able to help to cut through a lot of the bureaucracy to get vendors on board quickly and with some kind of unusual things. What's going on right now in contracting is you know we're looking at a once-in-a-generation change in how we do business and in the culture, and we'd like to get at least two generations ahead when we're thinking long-term planning so that we're not constantly in an urgency to get ahead and stay ahead of our adversaries. Yeah, another thing that I'm, happening that, that I'm seeing happen that I'm really excited about is a shift towards more modular contracting. Ironically, our Part 39 already says, and, and for years has said, that modular contracting is the preferred contracting approach for doing IT in particular, but you can, you could and should do modular contracting for a large number of different domains of technology. And what that means is instead of signing one massive monolithic contract, you know, one ring to rule them all type thing, instead, now a larger number of smaller contracts that are each connected and interrelated. And it turns out that the supposed efficiencies of scale that you get by having these big monolithic contracts never quite came to pass. It turns out that it is more efficient to have a large quantity of smaller modular contracts. It's easier to sign them, to manage them. Like there's all kinds of benefits. And actually FAR Part 39 explains those benefits. And it's a glorious thing when federal acquisition policy not only tells you what to do, but then explains why this is a good thing to do it. And it, and it just lays it out very clearly. It's very readable. I can't say that for all of the FAR, but FAR Part 39, I think, is, is actually pretty readable. So we're seeing more of that getting adopted because of the emphasis on speed and experimentation and prototyping and just a greater awareness of the fact that modular contracting is, is not only allowed, but preferred. Like literally by the FAR, it says this is the preferred approach. So if you're not doing modular contracting, I won't say you're violating the FAR exactly, but you're up against the line there. But if you're doing modular contracting, you really are much more in line with compliance with the regulations. And hey, we would like to comply with the regulations. And that's one in particular. I'm excited to see more and more people putting that into practice. And there is a great resource on DAU website. AAF.dau.edu is the website today. However, a lot of great changes coming down the road, so you may just need to uh, help the Google. So if I were Googling it, I would Google contracting cone, <laughs> MITRE, uh, <laughs> and you'll find something. But basically what um, MITRE put together a capability for OSD and DAU, uh, if you can envision a fan, and it has half of the fan, actually two-thirds of the fan, lists out all the different slices or different kind of contracting solutions that are available for FAR, and then the other third of the uh, the fan has slices for non-FAR. So in one picture that is actually clickable, you can see all of the different contracting options that are available. 
So, yeah, it's, a, it's a great interactive yeah. like digital tool that yeah. anybody can use to like understand what are the contracting options available to me. The basic premise is there's more than one way to do contracting. There's FAR Part 12 and FAR Part 13 and FAR Part, pick all your FAR Parts. And then there's the non-FAR option. Uh, so you can go to this website, again, Google Contracting Cone, click on each one and it'll give you information about each one. Why would you use this versus that? You can do comparisons of different contracting strategies to help you make an informed decision about what's the right contracting strategy for you. Kind of envision, you know, if you go to Amazon and you're interested in buying a book and right. you want to compare three different books and then you just scroll down and you can see how they compare and contrast. Same kind of a concept for contracting solutions. So to all my program manager brethren who are listening, go here first. Get a little bit of a feel for the contracting solutions, opportunities, and then go to your contracting officer. So when you walk in, you sound a little intelligent when you start talking about ideas and, and uh, solutions together to come up with a contracting strategy. You've done your market research right, on yes. the type of contract or yes. other transaction <laughs> agreement. Absolutely. That's an important point. I often say that ignorance of the FAR is a greater barrier to innovation than the FAR itself. <laughs> right. Ignorance of the policy is a bigger barrier to innovation than the policy itself. So to the extent that we're able to understand and, and be familiar with these policies, whether it's the FAR or the new 5000.80 or 5000.2, when you go in and you speak with your contracting officer, your engineer, your program manager, or, or, or industry partners, you can speak with intelligence. You can kind of quote chapter and verse and say, hey, because of FAR part 39 dot whatever, whatever, this is how I would like to proceed. It's just much easier to get to a yes. Uh, in that area. I feel like you just answered this for the contracting space, but there might be some resources that we haven't addressed. So can you speak to any online resources to assist organizations with accelerating their program strategy development and execution activities specifically? So let's see, we've, we've already mentioned. I got Accelerate. Yeah. So if the, the ADA website, it's a curation of a wealth of resources how to accelerate your, your acquisition, how like to... 30 different strategies on different mm -hmm. aspects of the program office. Including contracting. Contracting, culture, requirements, uh, a lot of that is, is on that site. We talked about the, the DAU website itself and a lot of resources there. Uh, one additional resource that's coming soon to DAU and may get a, a hand slap for <laughs> announcing this, but first to be announced <laughs> on this blog. Uh, and it, we, we talked about intellectual property earlier. DAU has an intent to put together a community of practice curation site for intellectual property. And since DAU has migrated from just taking care of internal workforce, i.e. government slash, you know, internal contractors, they're now looking at trying to go outside and share this knowledge with academia and industry as well. The DAU resource and the intellectual property community of practice that should be coming out in the, in the next few months is another critical one. We didn't talk about the toolkit. Oh yeah, let me put in a plug for MITRE's Innovation Toolkit. That's ITK. Dot M-I-T-R-E dot org, so I-T-K dot MITRE dot org. The Innovation Toolkit is a collection of 24 different innovation methods in six different categories. Our tagline is to kind of help people go beyond brainstorming. Our mission here is to help people understand what innovation is and how to do it. So for each of these 24 tools, we have an explanation of what is the tool, when would you use it, why would you use it, and then step-by-step -step instructions on how to use it. So step one, do this, step two, do that. They're all delightfully low-tech, like you just oftentimes just download them and print them out. Uh, so they're paper-based facilitation tools. They're fun to use. If you're not having fun with the innovation toolkit, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> they're, they're fairly easy to use, fairly self-explanatory. We also do have a blog on that um, ITK website that has like tool profiles where we'll have a description of here we were in this scenario. We, we use this tool. This is what it looked like, the outcome. We do facilitation tips on the blog. And again, our goal with this is to help people understand that innovation is more than just having a brainstorming session. It's about delivering novelty with impact. Novelty could mean new technologies or new processes, new systems, new communication styles. And impact could be saving time, saving money, increasing effectiveness, increasing lethality if it's a military system. And 
if we can answer that question, what's the novelty you're trying to introduce and what's the impact you're trying to have, then you can have an intelligent conversation about what are we trying to do that's innovative around here. And then the tools aim to help you do that. And, and just to clarify, that is outside the MITRE firewall, so yes, available to government, industry, academia. In fact, we, we publish it with a Creative Commons license, so you can just take it and run with it, download it, rehack, you know, mash it up with something else. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to use it in as many different applications as, as possible. It works for professional and non-personal. That's true. I've, we've used it with, with high school kids. We've used it with senior executives at the Pentagon and, and kind of everybody in between. Awesome. Well, I love this. And I love this conversation. You know, it's funny. We are clearancejobs.com, so a career site. A lot of the folks listening to this will be probably career professionals. We didn't even have to touch on why MITRE is a great place to work because the three <laughs> people as passionate as you guys about the work that you do. I would just encourage, again, any career-minded folks who are like, wow, these people know what they're talking about. And that's pretty much the best testimony you could ever have for a company um, is you want to work with other smart people that you respect. And it sounds like that's the kind of environment that you have at MITRE and definitely a wealth of thought leadership and resources in this area. It really is. We've built just a great multidisciplinary, diverse team with deep expertise and just great collaborative skills and great communication skills. It's uh, it's the best team I've worked on in, in my whole career. And then the company at large is very supportive of our team as mm. well. I know I'm new to outside the government, but I expected a lot of having to go back, you know, and get permission. Do I need to? No, just go. Get You're, you're, you're supporting uh, an organization that has a critical requirement. Just Go and get it done and let us know what you did. <laughs> yep, right, right. Well, amazing. Was there anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to touch on? No, I don't. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for, for your time, and we we appreciate Clearance Jobs, and we know you have a, a critical role in, uh, you know, bringing a workforce to industry, academia, you know, government as well, and so it's kind of all one team, one fight, right? We're, we're all just yeah. trying to make the acquisition ecosystem the best that it can be, and now stay ahead of those adversaries out there. Yeah, we really appreciate the chance to sort of tell some of our stories and, and share some of this with your listeners. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for the opportunity to be on your show. No, thank you. You all were speaking my love language throughout the whole call because clearance jobs, again, a big part of what I do with editorial is trying to convey these kind of obtuse clearance policy documents or that are born out of executive orders or, or things like that. And again, provide, you know, information about them. And you're definitely doing that and you're kind of have leadership in that area in the defense acquisition and contracting space. So it's very, very cool to see. So definitely encourage everyone who's listening to check out all the resources. They'll all be included in the companion article and just, yeah, check out what, what Meyer Corp is doing because it's pretty exciting. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thanks. Awesome. Thank this is Lindy Kaiser, Senior Editor of ClearanceJobs.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more security clearance news and defense industry information, please visit news.clearancejobs.com.